Funding for the Hinckley Report is made possible in part by the George S. and Dolores Dore Eccles Foundation and the Cleone Peterson Eccles Endowment Fund. Thank you for listening to the Hinckley Report as a podcast. If you like what you hear, please subscribe at your go-to podcast platform. Promotional support for this episode of the Hinckley Report podcast is provided by Trib Talk, an award-winning news podcast from the Salt Lake Tribune. Join host Benjamin Wood, Tribune reporters, and community guests as they dive into the latest topics affecting Utahns. Find Trib Talk at sltrib.com or by searching for Trib Talk on most major podcast platforms. Good evening, and welcome to The Hinckley Report. I'm Jason Perry, director of the Hinckley Institute of Politics. Covering the week, we have Lindsay Whitehurst, reporter for the Associated Press, Lester Rojas, anchor for Univision, and Boyd Matheson, opinion editor for the Deseret News. So glad to have you all with us. I know you're all sleepy because you stayed up late for election night. Some of us do that, I know. Uh, Boyd, let's talk about a, a very local uh, election. Let's start with Salt Lake City Mayor, because this is one where this position impacts the rest of the state. We have a new mayor-elect, Aaron Mendenhall. Uh, well, just over 7,000 votes, 58% to 42%. Some key takeaways from that election. I think one of the most important things is, is the on-the-ground, door-to-door, hand-to-hand uh, networking that she did throughout this process. Uh, in these off-off-year elections, it's all about turnout. And one of the really interesting things is she was able to flip. I mean, she had 97 out of the 124 precincts went her way. Of the 18 precincts that actually went to, to lose Escamilla in the uh, primary, Erin uh, Mendenhall was able to flip those. And so what that tells me is she understands the meaning of strategy, structure, and then those core disciplines, doing the hard work and heavy lifting of campaigning. Uh, Lindsay, that's interesting because she did flip a lot of those. Even those districts that Luz Escamilla did win in the primary, as Boyd just mentioned, how did she, how she do that? What was the message that started to resonate? You know, one thing I think that uh, that she did effectively was she presented a cohesive message, especially in her public statements to the media and interviews she did. She really hit the clean air issue hard. It's kind of how she got started, and she really, I think, kept emphasizing that. And I think when you have a crowded field as it started off with, um, and you're still trying to get that turnout and make sure people are there, I think sometimes having one issue, having a clear kind of brand almost, mm-hmm. can can really really help people excited. And I think a lot of people in Salt Lake think a lot about that clean air issue in particular too. Yeah, any other key issues you saw that resonated with voters, Lester? I believe that people have seen men in hall, in city hall for many years. And I think comparing to the experience of Luces Camilla, uh, she's in the Senate, she's a great leader. However, I think people, it says, uh, they see something in Mendenhall that didn't see on, on yeah. Luce, yeah. and that's experience in City Hall. Yeah, and I think one of the things to play, and to play into Lindsay's point is it was really a difference between generalities and specifics. Aaron Mendenhall had very spe- specific, practical, tactical things mm-hmm. that she was going to implement, and I think that overweighed or outplayed a little bit some of Luce's uh, things in terms of relationships with the, the, the legislature. Uh-huh. So, so Lester, it, it, this is an interesting question about experience too, when you start getting to the specifics. Uh, and I know you interviewed a lot of people going into this election too. And it was, do we want someone that has a lot of state experience or someone with a very local experience? And does this mean that voters, at least the ones you're talking to, felt like the, the experience that matters most to us right now is someone that's been in that seat for a while? Yeah, um, well, I, I would say yes. Uh, people, 
I was able to talk to Luz, to Senator Scamilla, the day of she uh, announced she was uh, her defeat. And she said that people is, is, is voting or is going to get what they have done during many years with many hall in City Hall. Mm -hmm. And I guess this is something that could turn it will be the same because has, nothing has changed, uh, that's what she said, or it will do something better with the specific that she said in her plans. Okay. Uh, one thing we just have to talk about, Lindsay, is uh, the vote by mail. Because right, that had a huge impact on this thing, and the turnout is interesting. Uh, in Salt Lake City, 48% is what it looks like the number is going to be. H higher than you expected? Uh, or Maybe just a little bit lower. I feel like you're getting an off-off year. 48% is not bad. Um, I know I was speaking with the uh, Salt Lake County clerk, and she was kind of hoping it might be up to 50, so not quite hitting that, but but not terrible. And the vote by mail kind of introduces an interesting element into elections. You know, people have their ballots a little longer, they can think about it a little longer, but it also takes longer to count when you drop those off, uh, especially the day of, which I think a yeah. lot of people do, um, myself included. Um, it's, it's harder for them to count. It takes a little bit longer than just punching a voting machine. And so, so it kind of introduces this interesting thing. We saw it in the fourth district race as well, okay. that, that when it's a very close race, those, those counts can really go on a lot longer than, than people have been given to expect in the past. Do people find that a little bit annoying that sometimes we don't know <laughs> who the winner is the night of? You know, uh, we, we always want instant gratification, right? And we in the media especially, we want to yes, know what's happening. We want to know, we yeah. know <laughs> yesterday, right? And, <laughs> and I do think there are some solid arguments for why vote by mail can be a good thing for democracy, giving people more chance to research and more chance to chew it over. But, but yeah, sometimes, you know, you want to know what's going to happen. Okay, boy, talk yeah. about that over time. Yeah, I, I think one of, the, one of the disappointing things to me was that it was only 48%, because this was not only a, a race that was important for the city and for the state, but it was also a race that was run on higher ground. Uh, didn't have the mudslinging and all of the things that we've associated with politics for so long. So it really was an inviting place for voters to actually engage. Uh, my hope is, is that Utah can continue to show this kind of politics, this higher level dialogue, more meaningful conversation, and that, that will actually invite more people into the process. And if we can, if we can scold the viewers for just a minute, there's no excuse. You can <laughs> kitchen table, go show up. Uh, this is one of the most important rights we have. And uh, I was just reflecting back, it was just a year ago, Major Brent Taylor was killed in Afghanistan, uh, former uh, North uh, Ogden mayor. And uh, his last post to social media before he was killed uh, was about the joy he had in watching those people vote for the first time. There's no excuse, especially here in a state like Utah. I want to give Salt Lake or Utah a, a C minus <laughs> because I mean the the elections office does whatever they do so it could be easier for us. But I think at the end of the day, the people that complain about this rule, this law, they complain because they didn't vote. They didn't go out and vote. So I I think it's really we have to take accountability. We have to teach our children to be more civic and engaged in this kind of elections. And I hope. This this turned to a B plus and next next election <laughs> yeah. next year. But okay. Yeah. Well, and one thing I wonder too is you do have two candidates who are pretty close on a lot of issues. Of course, they do have differences, and and both very strong candidates. You know, had more than a dozen debates, which really is a great thing to get out the civic engagement. But I wonder if, if sometimes voters kind of felt like, well, we've got two Democrats, they're pretty similar. Either I pretty much agree with them both, or I don't like either one of them. Yeah, you know, I wonder yeah. wonder if that was a factor yeah, for some but people. We also anyway. have that that factor of there there are still races that haven't been called yet. 
-hmm. You got one race that's a five vote difference, one 17 vote difference, 35 vote difference. Uh, if anybody's out there saying, well, my vote doesn't count, uh, it's so just not have. reality. Show You have to show up because ultimately we get the government we deserve. Uh, by showing up and voting. Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk about an issue that might just get people engaged <laughs> if they weren't already, all right? Uh, public, uh, Lindsay, public impeachment proceedings uh. about to start uh, in, in Washington, D.C. And uh, I'm kind of, kind of curious your take on how you see those, those going and whether or not this is really designed to help us understand all the issues or if this is maybe something else. <laughs> well, I think what'll be interesting is how many people are undecided, like how many people yeah. still fall in that camp, right? Because there are a lot of people with very strong opinions about the president and, and they've kind of decided what those are. And, and there are, I'm, I'm sure there are some people who are listening and making up their minds on what comes out of these impeachment proceedings, but there are definitely folks on both ends that they know how they feel <laughs> before, before these things even get started. So I think that'll be interesting. I think there probably is a, a decent slice of people who, are, who are, haven't made up their minds yet, but, um, but that's the part I think it will be interesting mm -hmm. to look at those folks. Uh, boy, let's talk about those, those great comments that Lindsay just made. Because the, a, lot, a lot of people are talking about is we just want a public process, right? Just make sure it all comes out. Is the system set up for us to have just that nice public look? No. Or, or no? <laughs> it's not. Okay, it's well, not. Sa sadly, what Washington has turned into, Washington is the master of the fake fight followed by the false choice. Uh, and we see that over and over. We'll see that next week in, uh, as they're debating whether we should fund the government. It'll be a fake fight and a false choice. They'll kick the can down the road. And as it relates to the impeachment proceedings, uh, everything that can be said by these people who are being called in before the committee for the public hearing, the committee already has all the information that is relevant and needed. So the, these hearings, and they shouldn't be called hearings because someone has to listen in order for it to be a hearing, uh, these are all about posturing. Both sides uh, are guilty of this. You have members of Congress who are, are not going out to get the facts and the truth for the American people. They're looking for a social media moment or a way they can, something they can use in their fundraising platform uh, for the next week. And so you're going to hear a lot of grandstanding a member of Congress will have five minutes, four and a half of that will be taken by them bloviating about however they want to position it. Very little fact fighting going on. And so it, it is a challenge and it's one I struggle with is that, yeah, we want, we want that transparency, but we know you're going to get much more information in a deposition when the cameras aren't rolling and someone's not trying to yeah. grandstand uh, than what we're going to see next week. Lester, what is your plan? Let's take that as uh, probably going to be the case. We'll see a lot of that grandstanding. As a member of the media, how are you going to process? How are you going to report on those kinds of proceedings? Oh, that's a tough question because I, uh, I just as Boyd Boy said, there is a lot of just a small information that we're going to get from, from I mean, who's going to be sitting in, the, in front of TV the whole day listening to these hearings? And I'm, for my part, I guess from, from our, as a news organization, we need just to try to get as much as information as we can and fact check it. I mean, this is something that will will turn really, really, really ugly, or it, it will be just hidden again behind doors. Uh, I'm just trying to present as as clean as possible and just as much difference as we get, just to present it because people need to get their 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 thoughts, their mind um, made up. Yeah. yeah. So they, they need to yeah. to gain their own. Uh, I don't have criteria in order to make a decision, and then that they they can say to their uh, corresponding uh, representatives, Chris Stewart, Curtis uh, Bishop, or McAdams. So they need to hear from us. Mm. Yeah. 
Lester brings up a really great point in terms of there, there are some real risks to both sides. Uh, for the Democrats, the risk is really going to be if Nancy Pelosi and Adam Schiff become the face of the Democratic Party, if they become the party of impeachment, uh, that's going to represent a challenge for them in 2020, especially in battleground yeah. states like Michigan and uh, Ohio and Pennsylvania. Uh, the Republicans obviously have the, the reverse risk if they're just the defenders of the president. And if the president gets so mired in the, the muck of it all, uh, if the president had an agenda and could focus on that, it would create distance. And so there are risks on, on both sides of the aisle on this thing. Uh, and the important thing for all of us as we watch this play out is none of this is going to be really advancing the cause of the American people. It's not going to help us with guns. It's not going to help us with immigrations or refugees uh, or a host of other things that we need to address uh, as a nation. And to that point, I think the other thing we, uh, this is a very important story. We need to be covering it, but also we got to be watching out for those other things to make sure it doesn't completely suck up all our time and energy and all the air out of the room. Like, let's also keep an eye out for those those other stories and making sure we're doing our best to cover cover those things that might get, you know, not, not let things get swept under the rug. Okay. So, Liz, while you're talking, uh, I want to talk about at least one of these risks. I think it's so interesting what you all brought up here. Uh, so Mitt Romney uh, has been someone that has taken a couple shots at uh, the president of the United States and, you know, people are looking him one way or another, but I was kind of curious about this risk because he's even part of national polls now. One that I think Deseret News ran this this poll recently, the uh, uh, NBC Wall Street Journal poll said only 20% of Americans have a positive view of Mitt Romney. That's after he's very engaged. Explain that and why it matters to America, what our own senator is saying. Yeah, and I think, well, of course, he has been uh, an outsized voice for a long time, right, because of who he is, a former presidential candidate, everything else, and, and then even more so because he's been one of the very few Republicans who's willing to be critical of the president. And um, and I think that that's one of the reasons he he's getting national attention now, right? Um, and, and that poll, I think, also showed a decent chunk of people who were neutral on him, who, who didn't yeah. necessarily have an opinion. And I think when you look at that nationally, you know, if I'm in Nebraska, I might not have have a real strong opinion on Mitt Romney one way or the other. But of course, you also have plenty of Republicans who don't necessarily like what he's doing, especially nationally. Um, he's he's not he's chosen kind of a lonely road here, you know. He's yeah. and, and I think he knows that. And he's he's chosen something where you can kind of not get much love from either side, right? For some people, yeah, he's so. not doing enough. For other people, he's doing too much. And so so that's a, it's a tough line to walk. That's good. So, so Boyd, maybe I understand that line a little bit. Is, is, do you think that people are uh, kind of have this approval rating that he does right now because they support President Trump? Is it some other kind of issue? Are they worried about the, the I, I, Democrat I coming in? Yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a really interesting space that he's in. There, I think there are exactly two people in Washington who have done exactly what they said they would do if they were elected, and it's President Trump and Mitt Romney. They both are doing exactly what they said they would do. And Mitt Romney has called out the president on issues of, of principle and character, as he said he would. He stood with the president. His voting record with the president is, is higher than anyone else in the state of Utah. Uh, and so he's, he's done exactly what he said he would do. I'll be transactional with the president. I'll vote with him on policy when I think it's right. I'll call it out when I think it's wrong. Uh, and so I think the, the low approval number, uh, I think, is much more indicative of the fact that he's, he is on that lonely road. He's, he's in the ring of fire, and so he offends the Democrats uh, when he stands with the president on a tax bill, for instance, uh, and he's attacked by the, the right and the Republicans uh, when he's not defending the president or calling the president out. Uh, that may not be a bad place for our politicians to be, mm -hmm. to be a little more transactional uh, rather than trying to have these party relationships that 
everyone thinks should drive everything. Uh, let's get back to principle and policy discussions and, and stand on principle first. And I think this is how this is why the voice of Mitt Romney has been important and crucial on these issues because he has he's in that road. Like if I'm if I believe I'm doing the right thing, I'd rather be my, my alone than with everyone else. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I think this is why why Romney is such an important voice in both topics. Okay, uh, let's switch gears to s some other politicians trying to find more friends uh, on a really complicated Get issue. A dog. <laughs> Get a dog. Get a dog okay. if you want a friend. So yeah. maybe a dog, not a tax reform yeah. uh, proposal, uh, potentially. So Lindsay, but they chose the tax reform proposal instead of the dog. So they, the tax the tax task force met yesterday. We have a new plan. Give us some of the particulars of that uh, as it's coming from our legislative leadership in Utah. Oh, and this is this is not an easy thing to do, right? On on any front. It's a, it's a complicated one. And and who knows, we may be even considering it in a special session in yeah. December. And then that'll almost it'll almost roll right into the, the full session. Um, and there's there's a lot of uh, proposals and one of them has to do with income tax. Of course that's yeah. created a little controversy. Sales tax that also has is not necessarily popular with folks who say that that might um, be a greater burden on, on lower income folks. And, and so there's gonna still be a lot of debate. We've heard a lot about this issue already and I think it's gonna, gonna continue here in the coming months. Yeah, so uh, let, let's talk about a couple of those points, Lester. Uh, one of the big ones that we just need to talk about is this, that uh, there's a proposal to eliminate the constitutional earmark of, of income tax for education. Uh, what are you hearing on the street from educators about that particular issue? Um, Okay, this is gonna be a low one, but uh, a low one because I think the, the the state always focusing on education for the for students for per pulpit uh, the dollar, but when in the world they're gonna focus on the teacher's salary? This is a, a really really big issue. That's that's what people are saying. I, yes, I, I want my kids to have a great education, to have the tools, to have the technology, to have everything so they can learn and and move forward. But teachers, teachers again. So this is something that they feel like is always left out. Yeah. So we have to get to how the how it gets to the teachers, boy. But I want to show you a statement. This is from the UEA president uh, Heidi Matthews, who's issuing this statement almost at the same time this task force is meeting. And is get your take on it because it does impact education specifically. Uh, Heidi Matthews. You said Utah's broken tax structure is nothing new. We believe legislators can devise a way to repair the broken sales tax structure without drastically cutting funding for education. Our kids' education must not be used as a political device just to make needed sales tax changes palatable. Then she says, "You need to show your work," <laughs> which I, I thought that. was which I thought was interesting <laughs> as well. I mean, is yeah. education being used as a tool? Yeah, it, it's one of the easiest political things to do during a campaign is to run on, hey, we need to you know, broaden the base, lower the rate, you know, expand it out, we gotta protect education. Those are all very easy uh, when you're talking about the uh, you know, gymnastics of a political campaign. Yeah. It gets really hard when you start getting to show your work and uh, get down to the math that actually does work. I think some of the proposals out there are clearly things we need to look at, uh, but I think we need to look at them in the right context. Uh, and I think that's what the legislature has found is difficult. The, you know, they, they talked a lot about doing that in the last session and then realized uh, it's a little more complicated than that and we've got to have a, a little deeper dive conversation. Uh, and I actually agree. I think they do need to show their work. So, so Lindsay, this is a very complicated one. I'm curious what you're hearing about how this message will go forward because uh, to change that earmark to, so that all income tax doesn't just go to education is going to require voters. Right, the voters are going to have to say, I'm willing to give that up in order to maybe have something better. Mm -hmm. How are they messaging that right now? How do you see, how did the task force meeting go on this particular issue? 
And if for voters, I think this is, is still all very new, right? I mean, the, the education thing went before the voters what, last year, the year before, with the, the, the gas tax thing after there was a big push to increase funding for education. And, and that didn't go through with the voters. And I think one of the, the thinking at that time was, was this a little bit too complicated for people? And so I think this new education debate is still really new for the voters, and I think we'll, we'll need to really explain all the complexity so that people yeah. can really understand when they when when and if, if and when, they do actually end up voting on this. Okay, so so, so how does this happen, Boyd? Because I'm, I'm curious. Legislature wants to lower income tax. Mm -hmm. If they're gonna lower income tax, they're gonna lower the money available for public ed. So it's gotta be made up on the other side. Is that right? That's right. Is, is it possible <laughs> for them to get that cut without I, I, change, I, I don't. I don't see how they can really get into that without. Again, they, they've got to show the work because the the one thing that the voters are going to demand is: Are we really showing our commitment to education? Uh, that's not going to change in the state of Utah. There is a firm commitment there. We have to get that part right. Uh, but then you start looking at all the alternatives and whether that's you know sales tax on services yeah. that got floated and got some momentum. And then people start saying, well, "Wait a minute! If I've got to pay you know the lawnmower and the hairdresser and you know all the other folks, who does that hurt the most?" And often it's the, the poor and the most vulnerable. Uh, and so this is a long, complicated conversation. And I don't think the legislature has done enough to engage the public in it, to show this is what we're going to do and how, and most of all, what this means to education for the long haul. So, Lister, there is still this conversation. There's the services, but also increasing the tax on food, putting that, that back up to 4.7%. Uh, mm -hmm. All right, there's, that's a pretty big impact. What are you hearing from the communities on that particular issue? Um, they don't like it because <laughs> transportation is still really a scarce source. I mean, there is no, how, how many people in a family of, of five at home with teenagers or people in college, how many of those uh, drive? Most of them have a car. And there's a lot of, there's minimal transportation like schedules, they have to wait. And so on, on gas, it could be something that, I mean, people don't see as much in the, at the beginning, but you know, when you add little by little, uh, 12 cents per, uh, per gallon or per, per tank, it's, it's, it just adds up and it's not gonna, for the, for the and, I, and I think one of the big worries that everyone has out there is if it's not linked to education, then, then where does it end up in the end? Because uh, one thing we know is that money like that tends to get moved around based on political purposes, not necessarily what's the best for the, the citizens of the state. And we'll keep having more students, not less. Yeah. And of course, historically, Utah, you often hear lowest in per people spending, all that stuff. And uh, and yeah, it's a, I think it's a, it's a thing that people think a lot about. It's important. Uh, I've definitely heard gubernatorial candidates talking about it for sure. They, they do for sure. And ju just one final note on this, because they're trying to push, our legislature's pushing this through, maybe by special session, as, as you mentioned, uh, but they're sitting at an interesting 43% job approval in the state of Utah, which is which is interesting. I don't know if you thought that would be higher or lower. 48% of Utahns disapprove, but this is still much better than how they view Congress. So, so Take I guess, your wins where you can get them, right? Yeah, I, I guess so. It's so, a low bar. So I, I want to I end sort of with, with an interesting positive note here. Uh, the governor uh, weighed in on a very important issue for Utahns, an issue that tends to cross every political divide here uh, when it comes to uh, refugees inside the state. And I, I want to talk 
talk about this letter that he just sent to President uh, Trump this week. I want to show it and get your take on this because it is sort of a unique Utah way. President, uh, to the president, uh, Governor Gary Herbert wrote, Utah's unique history informs our approach to refugees. Our state was founded by religious re refugees. As a result, we emphasize, empathize deeply with individuals and groups who have been forced from their homes and we love giving them a new home and a new life. So Lester, I just wanna ask you that question. Utah, I think this is the only state I know of where a governor is saying, we want more refugees. Um, well, this is amazing. I mean, there was a great response for the governor's e statement on this issue. Uh, as, as he said, Utah has a really uh, rich, rich history of refugees and how they were settled here you know to get freedom freedom of religion freedom to do their you know the to fight for the families and i think this is something not only sends a message to the to the state but also to other immigrants they are mm -hmm. living here they're trying to uh, reach and make a dream to work hard to contribute to the community i think this is something that it will resonate not only with refugees but also some latinos and some hispanics that are yeah. they are coming here to settle I, th I think one of the most important messages out of this is really the way Utahns look at refugees and everyone coming into the state. Uh, Utah does not look at refugees as liabilities to be managed. Uh, these are human assets, human potential to be fostered and developed. Utah has a history of being the most upwardly mobile place in the world. And it's upwardly mobile that someone who is in poverty, who comes here as a refugee or as an immigrant in poverty, has a better chance of not just getting out of poverty, but getting into their version of the American dream than anywhere else in the world. And it's because we have a great free market economy and we have strong institutions of civil society. We have families, neighborhoods, communities, religious and civic organizations, businesses that give back to the community. Uh, this is a laboratory of democracy and it's why Utah is not just a, a crossroads to the West anymore. Uh, it's really a crossroads to the world and people are watching what we do and this signal from the governor that yeah, we want more refugees because again, they're not liabilities to be managed. These are human assets that make Utah what it is and make it a better place for the world. Yeah, so, so Lindsay, to, the, to these great points. So we have over 60,000 refugees in the state of Utah right now. And, and in terms of politics, uh, these, the, these caps have been put in place by Democrats and by Republicans over time. How unique is it in your mind that we have a governor doing this? It's very unusual, especially for a Republican governor, right? And, and Gary Herbert has done this before. It's not the first time he's spoken out. And he kind of did this of his own accord. This wasn't something that he was responding to something else. He brought it up and he's bringing it. And of course, the state doesn't have a lot of control. Those limits are set at the federal level. But um, but it's it's definitely something that that is an important issue and one that that he, he's trying to bring to the forefront within his own party. It's it's not always easy to kind of be a lone voice of uh, of, of of some amount of I don't know if disagreement's quite the right word, but some amount of dissent. And and he's doing it. So yeah, Lester, last word. I guess uh, just really quick. Herbert has sent a message to those people that perhaps once have expressed that they don't like immigrants or they don't like refugees or why are we taking care of them. Uh, this is, sets a, a new standard to those people that say, you know, if Herbert did it, if a Republican leader did it, I think we can do it as well. All right. Very good insights today. Thank you very much for your participation. Thank you for listening to this podcast episode of The Hinkley Report. If you like listening to the experts talking about the issues, please leave us a review on your favorite podcast app.